Chapter Twenty Two of A Child's History of England. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by John Leader. A Child's History of England by Charles Dickens. Chapter Twenty Two England under Henry the Sixth. Part the First. It had been the wish of the late king that while his infant son, King Henry the Sixth, at this time only nine months old, was under age, the Duke of Gloucester should be appointed regent. The English Parliament, however, preferred to appoint a council of regency, with the Duke of Bedford at its head, to be represented, in his absence only, by the Duke of Gloucester. The Parliament would seem to have been wise in this, for Gloucester soon showed himself to be ambitious and troublesome, and, in the gratification of his own personal schemes, gave dangerous offence to the Duke of Burgundy, which was with difficulty adjusted. As that Duke declined the Regency of France, it was bestowed by the poor French King upon the Duke of Bedford. But the French king, dying within two months, the Dauphin instantly asserted his claim to the French throne, and was actually crowned under the title of Charles the Seventh. The Duke of Bedford, to be a match for him, entered into a friendly league with the Dukes of Burgundy and Brittany, and gave them his two sisters in marriage. War with France was immediately renewed, and the perpetual peace came to an untimely end. In the first campaign, the English, aided by this alliance, were speedily successful. As Scotland, however, had sent the French five thousand men, and might send more, or attack the north of England while England was busy with France, it was considered that it would be a good thing to offer the Scottish king, James, who had been so long imprisoned, his liberty, on his paying forty thousand pounds for his board and lodging during nineteen years, and engaging to forbid his subjects from serving under the flag of France. It is pleasant to know, not only that the amiable captive at last regained his freedom upon these terms, but that he married a noble English lady, with whom he had been long in love, and became an excellent king. I am afraid we have met with some kings in this history, and shall meet with some more, who would have been very much the better, and would have left the world much happier, if they had been imprisoned nineteen years too. In the second campaign, the English gained a considerable victory at Vanoui, in a battle which was chiefly remarkable otherwise, for the resorting to the odd expedient of tying their baggage-horses together by the heads and tails, and jumbling them up with the baggage, so as to convert them into a sort of live fortification, which was found useful to the troops, but which I should think was not agreeable to the horses. For three years afterwards very little was done, owing to both sides being too poor for war, which is a very expensive entertainment. But a council was then held in Paris, in which it was decided to lay siege to the town of Orléans, which was a place of great importance to the Dauphin's cause. An English army of ten thousand men was dispatched on this service, under the command of the Earl of Salisbury, a general of fame. 
He being unfortunately killed early in the siege, the Earl of Suffolk took his place, under whom, reinforced by Sir John Falstaff, who brought up four hundred wagons laden with salt herrings and other provisions for the troops, and beating off the French who tried to intercept him, came victorious out of a hot skirmish, which was afterwards called in jest the Battle of the Herrings. The town of Orleans was so completely hemmed in that the besieged proposed to yield it up to their countryman, the Duke of Burgundy. The English general, however, replied that his Englishmen had won it, so far, by their blood and valour, and that his Englishmen must have it. There seemed to be no hope for the town, or for the Dauphin, who was so dismayed that he even thought of flying to Scotland or to Spain, when a peasant girl rose up and changed the whole state of affairs. The story of this peasant girl I have now to tell. Part the Second, The Story of Joan of Arc In a remote village among some wild hills in the province of Lorraine, there lived a countryman whose name was Jacques de Arc. He had a daughter, Joan of Arc, who was at this time in her twentieth year. She had been a solitary girl from her childhood. She had often tended sheep and cattle for whole days where no human figure was seen or human voice heard, and she had often knelt for hours together in the gloomy, empty little village chapel, looking up at the altar and at the dim lamp burning before it, until she fancied that she saw shadowy figures standing there, and even that she heard them speak to her. The people in that part of France were very ignorant and superstitious, and they had many ghostly tales to tell about what they had dreamed, and what they saw among the lonely hills when the clouds and the mists were resting on them. So they easily believed that Joan saw strange sights, and they whispered among themselves that angels and spirits talked to her. At last Joan told her father that she had one day been surprised by a great unearthly light, and had afterwards heard a solemn voice, which said it was St. Michael's voice, telling her that she was to go and help the Dauphin. Soon after this, she said, St. Catherine and St. Margaret had appeared to her with sparkling crowns upon their heads, and had encouraged her to be virtuous and resolute. These visions had returned sometimes, but the voices very often, and the voices always said, "'Joan, thou art appointed by heaven to go and help the Dauphin.' She almost always heard them while the chapel bells were ringing. Now there is no doubt now that Joan believed she saw and heard these things. It is very well known that such delusions are a disease which is not by any means uncommon. It is probable enough that there were figures of St. Michael and St. Catherine and St. Margaret in the little chapel, where they would be very likely to have shining crowns upon their heads, and that they first gave Joan the idea of these three personages. She had long been a moping, fanciful girl, and though she was a very good girl, I dare say she was a little vain and wishful for notoriety. Her father, something wiser than his neighbour, said, "'I tell thee, Joan, it is thy fancy, and thou hadst better have a kind husband to take care of thee, girl, and work to employ thy mind.' But Joan told him, in reply, that she had taken a vow never to have a husband, and that she must go, as heaven directed her, to help the Dauphin. It happened, 
unfortunately for her father's persuasions, and most unfortunately for the poor girl, too, that a party of the Dauphin's enemies found their way into the village while Joan's disorder was at this point, and burnt the chapel, and drove out the inhabitants. The cruelties she saw committed touched Joan's heart and made her worse. She said that the voices and the figures were now continually with her, that they told her she was the girl who, according to an old prophecy, was to deliver France, and she must go and help the Dauphin, and must remain with him until he should be crowned at Reims, and that she must travel a long way to a certain lord named Baudricourt, who could and would bring her into the Dauphin's presence." As her father still said, "'I tell thee, Joan, it is thy fancy,' she set off to find out this lord, accompanied by an uncle, a poor village wheelwright and cart-maker, who believed in the reality of her visions. They travelled a long way, and went on and on, over a rough country, full of the Duke of Burgundy's men, and of all kinds of robbers and marauders, until they came to where this lord was.' When his servants told him that there was a poor peasant girl named Joan of Arc, accompanied by nobody but an old village wheelwright and cart-maker, who wished to see him because she was commanded to help the Dauphin and save France, Baudricourt burst out a-laughing, and bade them send the girl away. But he soon heard so much about her lingering in the town, and praying in the churches, and seeing visions, and doing harm to no one, that he sent for her and questioned her as she said the same things after she had been well sprinkled with holy water as she had said before the sprinkling baudricourt began to think there might be something in it at all events he thought it worth while to send her on to the town of chinon where the dauphin was so he bought her a horse and a sword and gave her two squires to conduct her as the voices had told Joan that she was to wear a man's dress, now she put one on, and girded her sword to her side, and bound spurs to her heels, and mounted her horse, and rode away with her two squires. As to her uncle the wheelwright, he stood staring at his niece in wonder until she was out of sight, as well he might, and then went home again. The best place, too." Joan and her two squires rode on and on, until they came to Chenon, where she was, after some doubt, admitted into the Dauphin's presence. Picking him out immediately from all his court, she told him that she came commanded by heaven to subdue his enemies and conduct him to his coronation at Reims. She also told him, or he pretended so afterwards, to make the greater impression upon his soldiers, a number of his secrets known only to himself— and furthermore, she said there was an old, old sword in the cathedral of St. Catherine at Fierbois, marked with five old crosses on the blade, which St. Catherine had ordered her to wear. Now, nobody knew anything about this old, old sword, but when the cathedral came to be examined, which was immediately done, there, sure enough, the sword was found. The Dauphin then required a number of grave priests and bishops to give him their opinion whether the girl derived her power from good spirits or from evil spirits, which they held prodigiously long debates about, in the course of which several learned men fell fast asleep and snored loudly. At last, when one gruff old gentleman had said to Joan, "'What language do your voices speak?' and when Joan had replied to the gruff old gentleman, a pleasanter language than yours, 
they agreed that it was all correct, and that Joan of Arc was inspired from heaven. This wonderful circumstance put new heart into the Dauphin's soldiers when they heard of it, and dispirited the English army, who took Joan for a witch. So Joan mounted horse again, and again rode on and on until she came to Orléans. But she rode now as never peasant girl had ridden yet. She rode upon a white war-horse, in a suit of glittering armour, with the old, old sword from the cathedral, newly burnished, in her belt, with a white flag carried before her, upon which were a picture of God, and the words, Jesus Maria. In this splendid state, at the head of a great body of troops, escorting provisions of all kinds for the starving inhabitants of Orléans, she appeared before that beleaguered city. When the people on the walls beheld her, they cried out, The maid is come! The maid of the prophecy is come to deliver us! And this, and the sight of the maid fighting at the head of their men, made the French so bold, and made the English so fearful, that the English line of forts was soon broken, the troops and provisions were got into the town, and Orléans was saved. Joan, henceforth called the Maid of Orléans, remained within the walls for a few days, and caused letters to be thrown over, ordering Lord Suffolk and his Englishmen to depart from before the town according to the will of heaven. As the English general very positively declined to believe that Joan knew anything about the will of heaven, which did not mend the matter with his soldiers, for they stupidly said if she were not inspired, she was a witch, and it was of no use to fight against a witch. She mounted her white war-horse again, and ordered her white banner to advance. The besiegers held the bridge, and some strong towers upon the bridge, and here the Maid of Orléans attacked them. The fight was fourteen hours long. She planted a scaling ladder with her own hands, and mounted a tower wall, but was struck by an English arrow in the neck, and fell into the trench. She was carried away, and the arrow was taken out, during which operation she screamed and cried with the pain, as any other girl might have done, but presently she said that the voices were speaking to her and soothing her to rest. After a while she got up and was again foremost in the fight. When the English, who had seen her fall and supposed her dead, saw this, they were troubled with the strangest fears, and some of them cried out that they beheld St. Michael on a white horse, probably Joan herself, fighting for the French. They lost the bridge, and lost the towers, and next day set their chain of forts on fire, and left the place. But as Lord Suffolk himself retired no farther than the town of Jargot, which was only a few miles off, the Maid of Orléans besieged him there, and he was taken prisoner. As the white banner scaled the wall, she was struck upon the head with a stone, and was again tumbled down into the ditch. But she only cried all the more as she lay there, "'On, on, my countrymen, and fear nothing, for the Lord hath delivered them into our hands!' After this new success of the maids, several other fortresses and places, which had previously held out against the Dauphin, were delivered up without a battle, and at Pate she defeated the remainder of the English army, and set up her victorious white banner on a field where twelve hundred Englishmen lay dead. She now urged the Dauphin, 
who always kept out of the way when there was any fighting, to proceed to Reims, as the first part of her mission was accomplished, and to complete the whole by being crowned there. The Dauphin was in no particular hurry to do this, as Reims was a long way off, and the English and the Duke of Burgundy were still strong in the country through which the road lay. However, they set forth with ten thousand men, and again the Maid of Orléans rode on and on, upon her white war-horse and in her shining armour. Whenever they came to a town which yielded readily, the soldiers believed in her, but whenever they came to a town which gave them any trouble, they began to murmur that she was an impostor. The latter was particularly the case at Troy, which finally yielded, however, through the persuasion of one Richard, a friar of the place. Friar Richard was in the old doubt about the Maid of Orléans, until he had sprinkled her well with holy water, and had also well sprinkled the threshold of the gate by which she came into the city. Finding that it made no change in her or the gate, he said, as the other grave old gentleman had said, that it was all right, and became her great ally. So, at last, by dint of riding on and on, the Maid of Orléans, and the Dauphin, and the ten thousand sometimes believing and sometimes unbelieving men, came to Reims, and in the great cathedral of Reims the Dauphin actually was crowned Charles the Seventh in a great assembly of the people. Then the Maid, who with her white banner stood beside the king in that hour of his triumph, kneeled down upon the pavement at his feet, and said, with tears, that what she had been inspired to do was done, and that the only recompense she asked for was, that she should now have leave to go back to her distant home, and her sturdily incredulous father, and her first simple escort, the village wheelwright and cart-maker. But the king said, No, and made her and her family as noble as a king could, and settled upon her the income of a count. Ah! happy had it been for the Maid of Orléans if she had resumed her rustic dress that day, and had gone home to the little chapel and the wild hills, and had forgotten all these things, and had been a good man's wife, and had heard no stranger voices than the voices of little children. It was not to be, and she continued helping the king—she did a world for him in alliance with Friar Richard—and trying to improve the lives of the coarse soldiers— and leading a religious, unselfish, and a modest life her, herself beyond any doubt. Still, many times she prayed the king to let her go home, and once she even took off her bright armour and hung it up in a church, meaning never to wear it more. But the king always won her back again, while she was of any use to him, and so she went on and on and on to her doom. When the Duke of Bedford, who was a very able man, began to be active for England, and, by bringing the war back into France, and by holding the Duke of Burgundy to his faith, to distress and disturb Charles very much, Charles sometimes asked the Maid of Orléans what the voices said about it. But the voices had become, very like ordinary voices in perplexed times, contradictory and confused so that now they said one thing, and now said another, and the maid lost credit every day. Charles marched on Paris, which was opposed to him, and attacked the suburb of Saint-Honoré. In this fight, being again struck down into the ditch, she was abandoned by the whole army. She lay unaided among a heap of dead, and crawled out how she could. Then some of her believers went over to an opposition maid, Catherine of La Rochelle, 
who said she was inspired to tell where there were treasures of buried money, though she never did, and then Joan accidentally broke the old, old sword, and others said that her power was broken with it. Finally, at the siege of Compiègne, held by the Duke of Burgundy, where she did valiant service, she was basely left alone in a retreat, though facing about and fighting to the last, and an archer pulled her off her horse. Oh, the uproar that was made, and the thanksgivings that were sung about the capture of this one poor country girl! Oh, the way in which she was demanded to be tried for sorcery and heresy and anything else you like by the Inquisitor-General of France, and by this great man, and by that great man, until it is wearisome to think of! She was bought at last by the Bishop of Bouvet for ten thousand francs, and was shut up in her narrow prison, plain Joan of Arc again, and maid of Orleans no more. I should never have done if I were to tell you how they had Joan out to examine her, and cross-examine her, and re-examine her, and worry her into saying anything and everything, and how all sorts of scholars and doctors bestowed their utmost tediousness upon her. Sixteen times she was brought out and shut up again, and worried, and entrapped, and argued with, until she was heartsick of the dreary business. On the last occasion of this kind she was brought into a burial-place at Rouen, dismally decorated with a scaffold, and a stake, and faggots, and the executioner, and a pulpit with a friar therein, and an awful sermon ready. It is very affecting to know that even at that pass the poor girl honoured the mean vermin of a king, who had so used her for his purposes, and so abandoned her, and that while she had been regardless of reproaches heaped upon herself, she spoke out courageously for him. It was natural in one so young to hold to life. To save her life she signed a declaration prepared for her, signed it with a cross, for she couldn't write, that all her visions and voices had come from the devil. Upon her recanting the past, and protesting that she would never wear a man's dress in future, she was condemned to imprisonment for life, on the bread of sorrow and the water of affliction. But, on the bread of sorrow and the water of affliction, the visions and the voices soon returned. It was quite natural that they should do so, for that kind of disease is much aggravated by fasting, loneliness, and anxiety of mind. It was not only got out of Joan that she considered herself inspired again, but she was taken in a man's dress, which had been left, to entrap her, in her prison, and which she put on, in her solitude perhaps in remembrance of her past glories, perhaps because the imaginary voices told her. For this relapse into the sorcery and heresy and anything else you like, she was sentenced to be burnt to death. And, in the market-place of Rouen, in the hideous dress which the monks had invented for such spectacles, with priests and bishops sitting in a gallery looking on, though some had the Christian grace to go away, unable to endure the infamous scene, this shrieking girl, last seen amidst the smoke and fire, holding a crucifix between her hands, last heard, calling upon Christ, was burnt to ashes. They threw her ashes into the river Seine, but they will rise against her murderers on the last day. From the moment of her capture, neither the French king nor one single man in all his court raised a finger to save her. 
It is no defense of them that they may have never really believed in her, or that they may have won her victories by their skill and bravery. The more they pretended to believe in her, the more they had caused her to believe in herself, and she had ever been true to them, ever brave, ever nobly devoted. But it is no wonder that they, who were in all things false to themselves, false to one another, false to their country, false to heaven, false to earth, should be monsters of ingratitude and treachery to a helpless peasant girl. In the picturesque old town of Rouen, where weeds and grass grow high on the cathedral towers, and the venerable Norman streets are still warm in the blessed sunlight, though the monkish fires that once gleamed horribly upon them have long grown cold, there is a statue of Joan of Arc, in the scene of her last agony, the square to which she has given its present name. I know some statues of modern times, even in the world's metropolis, I think, which commemorate less constancy, less earnestness, smaller claims upon the world's attention, and much greater impostors. Part the Third Bad deeds seldom prosper, happily for mankind, and the English cause gained no advantage from the cruel death of Joan of Arc. For a long time the war went heavily on, the Duke of Bedford died, the alliance with the Duke of Burgundy was broken, the Lord Talbot became a great general on the English side in France. But two of the consequences of war are famine, because the people cannot peacefully cultivate the ground, and pestilence, which comes of want, misery, and suffering. Both these horrors broke out in both countries, and lasted for two wretched years. Then the war went on again, and came by slow degrees to be so badly conducted by the English government that, within twenty years from the execution of the Maid of Orléans, of all the great French conquests, the town of Calais alone remained in English hands. While these victories and defeats were taking place in the course of time, many strange things happened at home. The young king, as he grew up, proved to be very unlike his great father, and showed himself a miserable, puny creature. There was no harm in him. He had a great aversion to shedding blood, which was something, but he was a weak, silly, helpless young man, and a mere shuttlecock to the great lordly battledores about the court. Of these battledores, Cardinal Beaufort, a relation of the king, and the Duke of Gloucester were at first the most powerful. The Duke of Gloucester had a wife, who was nonsensically accused of practicing witchcraft to cause the king's death and lead to her husband's coming to the throne, he being the next heir. She was charged with having, by the help of a ridiculous old woman named Marjorie, who was called a witch, made a little waxen doll in the king's likeness, and put it before a slow fire that it might gradually melt away. It was supposed, in such cases, that the death of the person whom the doll was made to represent was sure to happen. Whether the Duchess was as ignorant as the rest of them, and really did make such a doll with such an intention, I don't know. But you and I know very well that she might have made a thousand dolls, if she had been stupid enough, and might have melted them all, without hurting the King or anybody else. However, she was tried for it, and so was old Marjorie, and so was one of the Duke's chaplains who was charged with having assisted them. 
Both he and Marjorie were put to death, and the Duchess, after being taken on foot and bearing a lighted candle three times around the city as a penance, was imprisoned for life. The Duke himself took all this pretty quietly, and made as little stir about the matter as if he were rather glad to be rid of the Duchess. But he was not destined to keep himself out of trouble long. The royal shuttlecock being three-and-twenty, the battledores were very anxious to get him married. The Duke of Gloucester wanted him to marry a daughter of the Count of Armagnac, but the Cardinal and the Earl of Suffolk were all for Margaret, the daughter of the King of Sicily, who they knew was a resolute, ambitious woman, and would govern the King as she chose. To make friends with this lady, the Earl of Suffolk, who went over to arrange the match, consented to accept her for the king's wife without any fortune, and even to give up the two most valuable possessions England then had in France. So the marriage was arranged on terms very advantageous to the lady, and Lord Suffolk brought her to England, and she was married at Westminster. On what pretense this queen and her party charged the Duke of Gloucester with high treason within a couple years, it is impossible to make out, the matter is so confused, but they pretended that the king's life was in danger, and they took the duke prisoner. A fortnight afterwards he was found dead in bed, they said, and his body was shown to the people, and Lord Suffolk came in for the best part of his estates. You know by this time how strangely liable state prisoners were to sudden death. If Cardinal Beaufort had any hand in this matter, it did him no good, for he died within six weeks, thinking it very hard and curious, at eighty years old, that he could not live to be Pope. This was the time when England had completed her loss of all her great French conquests. The people charged the loss principally upon the Earl of Suffolk, now a duke, who had made those easy terms about the royal marriage, and who, they believed, had even been bought by France. So he was impeached as a traitor, on a great number of charges, but chiefly on accusations of having aided the French king, and of designing to make his own son king of England. The commons, and the people being violent against him, the king was made, by his friends, to interpose to save him, by banishing him for five years, and proroguing the Parliament. The Duke had much ado to escape from a London mob, two thousand strong, who lay in wait for him in St. Giles' fields, but he got down to his own estates in Suffolk, and sailed away from Ipswich. Sailing across the Channel, he sent into Calais to know if he might land there, but they kept his boat and men in the harbour, until an English ship, carrying a hundred and fifty men, and called the Nicholas of the Tower, came alongside his little vessel, and ordered him on board. "'Welcome, traitor, as men say,' was the captain's grim and not very respectful salutation. He was kept on board a prisoner for eight-and-forty hours, and then a small boat appeared rowing toward the ship. As this boat came nearer, it was seen to have in it a block, a rusty sword, and an executioner in a black mask. The duke was handed down into it, and there his head was cut off with six strokes of the rusty sword. Then the little boat rowed away to Dover Beach, where the body was cast out, and left until the duchess claimed it. By whom, high in authority, this murder was committed, has never appeared. No one was ever punished for it. There now arose in Kent an Irishman, who gave himself the name of Mortimer, but whose real name was Jack Cade. 
Jack, in imitation of Wat Tyler, though he was a very different and inferior sort of man, addressed the Kentish men upon their wrongs, occasioned by the bad government of England, among so many battledores and such a poor shuttlecock, and the Kentish men rose up to the number of twenty thousand. Their place of assembly was Blackheath, where, headed by Jack, they put forth two papers, which they called the Complaint of the Commons of Kent, and the requests of the captain of the great assembly in Kent. They then retired to Sevenoaks. The royal army, coming up with them here, they beat it and killed their general. Then Jack dressed himself in the dead general's armour, and led his men to London. Jack passed into the city from Southwark, over the bridge, and entered it in triumph, giving the strictest order to his men not to plunder. Having made a show of his forces there, while the citizens looked on quietly, he went back into Southwark in good order, and passed the night. Next day he came back again, having got hold in the meantime of Lord Say, an unpopular nobleman. Says Jack to the Lord Mayor and judges, "'Will you be so good as to make a tribunal in Guildhall, and try me this nobleman?' The court being hastily made, he was found guilty, and Jack and his men cut his head off on Cornhill." They also cut off the head of his son-in-law, and then went back in good order to Southwark again. But, although the citizens could bear the beheading of an unpopular lord, they could not bear to have their houses pillaged, and it did so happen that Jack, after dinner, perhaps he had drunk a little too much, began to plunder the house where he lodged, upon which, of course, his men began to imitate him. Wherefore, the Londoners took counsel with Lord Scales, who had a thousand soldiers in the tower, and defended London Bridge, and kept Jack and his people out. This advantage gained, it was resolved by divers great men to divide Jack's army in the old way, by making a great many promises on behalf of the state that were never intended to be performed. This did divide them some of Jack's men saying that they ought to take the conditions which were offered, and others saying that they ought not, for they were only a snare, some going home at once, others staying where they were, and all doubting and quarrelling among themselves. Jack, who was in two minds about fighting or accepting a pardon, and who indeed did both, saw at last that there was nothing to expect from his men, and that it was very likely some of them would deliver him up and get a reward for a thousand marks, which was offered for his apprehension. And so, after they had travelled and quarrelled all the way from Southwark to Blackheath, and from Blackheath to Rochester, he mounted a good horse and galloped away into Sussex. But there galloped after him, on a better horse, one Alexander Iden, who came up with him, had a hard fight with him, and killed him. Jack's head was set aloft on London Bridge, with a face looking toward Blackheath, where he had raised his flag, and Alexander Iden got the thousand marks. It is supposed by some that the Duke of York, who had been removed from a high post abroad through the Queen's influence, and sent out of the way to govern Ireland, was at the bottom of this rising of Jack and his men, because he wanted to trouble the government. He claimed, though not yet publicly, to have a better right to the throne than Henry of Lancaster, as one of the family of the Earl of March, whom Henry the Fourth had set aside. Touching this claim, which, being through female relationship, was not according to the usual descent, 
it is enough to say that Henry the Fourth was the free choice of the people and the Parliament, and that his family had now reigned undisputed for sixty years. The memory of Henry V was so famous, and the English people loved it so much, that the Duke of York's claim would, perhaps, never have been thought of, it would have been so hopeless, but for the unfortunate circumstance of the present king's being by this time quite an idiot, and the country very ill-governed. These two circumstances gave the Duke of York a power he could not otherwise have had. Whether the Duke knew anything of Jack Cade or not, he came over from Ireland while Jack's head was on London Bridge, being secretly advised that the Queen was setting up his enemy, the Duke of Somerset, against him. He went to Westminster at the head of four thousand men, and on his knees before the King represented to him the bad state of the country, and petitioned him to summon a Parliament to consider it. This the King promised. When the Parliament was summoned, the Duke of York accused the Duke of Somerset, and the Duke of Somerset accused the Duke of York, and, both in and out of the Parliament, the followers of each party were full of violence and hatreds toward the other. At length the Duke of York put himself at the head of a large force of his tenants, and, in arms, demanded the reformation of the government. Being shut out of London, he encamped at Dartford, and the royal army encamped at Blackheath. According as either side triumphed, the Duke of York was arrested, or the Duke of Somerset was arrested. The trouble ended, for the moment, in the Duke of York renewing his oath of allegiance, and going in peace to one of his own castles. Half a year afterwards the Queen gave birth to a son, who was very ill-received by the people, and not believed to be the son of the King. It shows the Duke of York to have been a moderate man, unwilling to involve England in new troubles, that he did not take advantage of the general discontent at this time, but really acted for the public good. He was made a member of the cabinet, and the king being now so much worse that he could not be carried about and shown to the people with any decency, the duke was made Lord Protector of the Kingdom, until the king should recover, or the prince should come of age. At the same time the Duke of Somerset was committed to the tower. So now the Duke of Somerset was down, and the Duke of York was up. By the end of the year, however, the King recovered his memory, and some spark of sense, upon which the Queen used her power, which recovered with him, to get the Protector disgraced, and her favourite released. So now the Duke of York was down, and the Duke of Somerset was up. These ducal ups and downs gradually separated the whole nation into the two parties of York and Lancaster, and led to those terrible civil wars long known as the Wars of the Red and White Roses, because the Red Rose was the badge of the House of Lancaster, and the White Rose was the badge of the House of York. The Duke of York, joined by some other powerful noblemen of the White Rose Party, and leading a small army, met the King with another small army at St. Albans, and demanded that the Duke of Somerset should be given up. The poor King, being made to say in answer that he would sooner die, was instantly attacked. The Duke of Somerset was killed, and the King himself was wounded in the neck, and took refuge in the house of a poor tanner. Whereupon the Duke of York went to him, led him with great submission to the Abbey, and said he was very sorry for what had happened. 
Having now the King in his possession, he got a Parliament summoned, and himself once more made protector, but only for a few months, for, on the King getting a little better again, the Queen and her party got him into their possession, and disgraced the Duke once more. So now the Duke of York was down again. Some of the best men in power, seeing the danger of these constant changes, tried even then to prevent the Red and the White Rose Wars. They brought about a great council in London between the two parties. The White Roses assembled in Blackfriars, the Red Roses in Whitefriars, and some good priests communicated between them, and made the proceedings known at evening to the King and the judges. They ended in a peaceful agreement that there should be no more quarrelling, and there was a great royal procession to St. Paul's, in which the Queen walked arm in arm with her old enemy, the Duke of York, to show the people how comfortable they all were. This state of peace lasted half a year, when a dispute between the Earl of Warwick, one of the Duke's powerful friends, and some of the King's servants at court, led to an attack upon that Earl, who was a white rose, and to a sudden breaking out of all old animosities. So here were greater ups and downs than ever. There were even greater ups and downs than these soon after. After various battles, the Duke of York fled to Ireland, and his son, the Earl of March, to Calais, with their friends, the Earl of Salisbury and Warwick, and a Parliament was held, declaring them all traitors. Little the worse for this, the Earl of Warwick presently came back, landed in Kent, and was joined by the Archbishop of Canterbury and other powerful noblemen and gentlemen, engaged the King's forces at Northampton, signally defeated them, and took the King himself prisoner, who was found in his tent. Warwick would have been glad, I dare say, to have taken the Queen and Prince too, but they escaped into Wales and thence into Scotland. The King was carried by the victorious force straight to London, and made to call a new Parliament, which immediately declared that the Duke of York and those other noblemen were not traitors, but excellent subjects. Then, back comes the Duke from Ireland, at the head of five hundred horsemen, rides from London to Westminster, and enters the House of Lords. There he laid his hand upon the cloth of gold which covered the empty throne, as if he had half a mind to sit down in it, but he did not. On the Archbishop of Canterbury, asking him if he would visit the King, who was in his palace close by, he replied, I know no one in this country, my lord, who ought not to visit me. None of the lords present spoke a single word, so the duke went out as he had come in, established himself royally in the king's palace, and six days afterwards sent in to the lords a formal statement of his claim to the throne. The lords went to the king on this momentous subject, and after a great deal of discussion, in which the judges and the other law officers were afraid to give an opinion on either side, the question was compromised. It was agreed that the present king should retain the crown for his life, and that it should then pass to the Duke of York and his heirs. But the resolute queen, determined on asserting her son's right, would hear of no such thing. She came from Scotland to the north of England, where several powerful lords armed in her cause. The Duke of York, for his part, set off with some five thousand men, a little time before Christmas Day, one thousand four hundred and sixty, to give her battle. He lodged at Sandal Castle near Wakefield, and the Red Roses defied him to come out on Wakefield Green and fight them then and there. 
His generals said he had best wait until his gallant son, the Earl of March, came up with his power, but he was determined to accept the challenge. He did so in an evil hour. He was hotly pressed on all sides, two thousand of his men lay dead on Wakefield Green, and he himself was taken prisoner. They set him down in mock state on an ant hill, and twisted grass about his head, and pretended to pay court to him on their knees, saying, O king without a kingdom, and prince without a people, we hope your gracious majesty is very well and happy. Well, they did worse than this. They cut his head off, and handed it on a pole to the queen, who laughed with delight when she saw it. You recollect their walking so religiously and comfortably to St. Paul's? And had it fixed, with a paper crown upon its head, on the walls of York. The Earl of Salisbury lost his head too, and the Duke of York's second son, a handsome boy who was flying with his tutor over Wakefield Bridge, was stabbed in the heart by a murderous lord, Lord Clifford by name, whose father had been killed by the White Roses in the fight at St. Albans. There was awful sacrifice of life in this battle, for no quarter was given, and the Queen was wild for revenge. When men unnaturally fight against their own countrymen, they are always observed to be more unnaturally cruel and filled with rage than they are against any other enemy. But Lord Clifford had stabbed the second son of the Duke of York, not the first. The eldest son, Edward, Earl of March, was at Gloucester, and, vowing vengeance for the death of his father, his brother, and their faithful friends, he began to march against the Queen. He had to turn and fight a great body of Welsh and Irish first, who worried his advance. These he defeated in a great fight at Mortimer's Cross near Hereford, where he beheaded a number of the White Roses taken in battle, in retaliation for the beheading of the White Roses at Wakefield. The Queen had the next turn of beheading. Having moved toward London, and falling in, between St. Albans and Barnet, with the Earl of Warwick and the Duke of Norfolk, White Roses both, who were there with an army to oppose her, and had got the King with them, she defeated them with great loss, and struck off the heads of two prisoners of note, who were in the King's tent with him, and to whom the King had promised his protection. Her triumph, however, was very short. She had no treasure, and her army persisted by plunder. This caused them to be hated and dreaded by the people, and particularly by the London people who were wealthy. As soon as the Londoners heard that Edward, Earl of March, united with the Earl of Warwick, was advancing toward the city, they refused to send the Queen supplies, and made a great rejoicing. The Queen and her men retreated with all speed, and Edward and Warwick came on, greeted with loud acclamations on every side. The courage, beauty, and virtues of young Edward could not be sufficiently praised by the whole people. He rode into London like a conqueror, and met with an enthusiastic welcome. A few days afterwards, Lord Falconbridge and the Bishop of Exeter assembled the citizens in St. John's Field, Clerkenwell, and asked them if they would have Henry of Lancaster for their king. To this they all roared, No, 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 and King Edward, King Edward. Then said those noblemen, Would they love and serve young Edward? To this they all cried, Yes, yes, and threw up their caps and clapped their hands and cheered tremendously. Therefore it was declared that by joining the Queen and not protecting those two prisoners of note, 
Henry of Lancaster had forfeited the crown, and Edward of York was proclaimed king. He made a great speech to the applauding people at Westminster, and sat down as sovereign of England on that throne, on the golden covering of which his father, worthy of a better fate than the bloody axe which cut the thread of so many lives in England through so many years, had laid his hand. End of chapter 22 Recording by John Leader, Bloomington, Illinois